Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Suzanne Morse, filling in this week for Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's 3-2-1-Go with Cosmo Macero and me. Then I have an interview with maestro Bruce Hengen of Indian Hill Music. And no two minutes with Tom this week, but you'll hear a sneak peek of our OA on Healthcare podcast with Joe Alviani. First up, 3-2-1-Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, business, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, the Boy Scouts of America have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We'll break it down and how it relates to the expanding sex abuse scandal within that organization. And we'll talk about the decision by Springfield-based Mass Live to eliminate reader comments on their online news stories. Finally, we'll look at the U.S. Senate race between incumbent Ed Markey and Congressman Joe Kennedy in their first debate and how that went down. Joining me here on 321GO is Suzanne Morse. Hello, Cosmo. Suzanne, good to have you back. Filling in for the vacationing, Cayenne Isaacson. I am always, always happy to be here. Excellent. We have a terrific slate, so let's get moving. All righty. All right, Suzanne, let's get started with the Boy Scouts of America. The organization has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They are facing um, really the potential for crushing litigation. Uh, tied to um, uh, uh, an abuse scandal that has been uh, brewing and evolving for many years. Correct. Let's talk about it. Sure. So um, it won't be a surprise to you or to anyone who knows me that, of course, this is very uh, similar to uh, what uh, what I know about what happened within the, the Catholic Church and the clergy. As the former spokesperson for both Voice of the Faithful. Correct. That's yes. right. And um, it's interesting. I mean... Uh, it is the national organization. It's not the local council, so that's just worth noting. It is a, a massive amount of victims, and the idea here is that the uh, the organization is filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy as a way of mitigate, mitigating their financial risk um, since their presumption is that the this will force more of a global settlement as opposed to um, individual settlements um, going through lawsuits, etc., and that is at least here Wh- in Boston a global settlement settlement which would potentially be less financially right. de- de- uh, destructive, less financially destructive, destructive, and minimizes the the amount of information that comes out. I mean, that's what happened here with the Archdiocese of Boston, where. Um, there was a global settlement that the Archdiocese settled on a number of, of victims, which prevented um, a bunch of lawsuits coming forward and even more information coming out. The reality is whenever you hear these cases, and this happens to me still whenever I hear um, and stories from victims of, of clergy sexual abuse, and I think it's true with scouting, um, it's always shocking. It's always horrifying. Yeah. And it just makes people angry over and over again. So this is a way for them, for the scouts to 
to kind of limit their financial damage that they're going to take, and it's going to happen, but it's probably also a way to limit their reputational damage. Now, um, scouting, and I was, a, I was a Cub Scout. I wasn't a Boy Scout, but scouting is, number one, a, a, a fundamental part of Americana. Right. Uh, so many young men uh, um, really have a wonderful scouting experience, and so many people I've seen on social media talking about it in the past week or so uh, as, as this latest development has unfolded. Is there a risk of, you know, the, the, the wholesome, educational, enlightening, enriching, uh, coming-of-age scouting experience in America being erased? I mean, I think that there is just as, you know, just as the, um, the positives that people came up in their experience within the Catholic Church being tainted by sure. what they knew about clergy sexual abuse, I suspect that that's going to be true for, for scouts. Um, you know, my brothers were in the Cub Scouts. They, they did not go into Boy Scouts either. So it wasn't a big part of our family. But, you know, with these with organizations that do trade on the notion that they are wholesome and patriotic, yeah. to, to be covering up um, for years and systemically covering up abuse, it really is incredibly damaging to how people perceive them. But even in their own memory, I think it has uh, damage to the way that they perceive their own experiences. Yeah, and the, and the look the classic image. It's a cliche, you know. It's a cliche compliment. Oh, he's a real boy scout, mm-hmm. right? He's a, he's a real good yeah. kid, a real good guy. Yeah, that's a right. Real upstanding, sort of honorable person. Right. That's that still holds true to when you when you use that that right. term that cliche. But the organization has been badly damaged. Yeah, um, and you wonder if that if that uh, phrase starts to take on a different meaning. It, 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 in the, I think in the eye in the in the eyes of uh, of many, it probably does. Yeah, um, and that's a whole that's a whole different sort of category of damage, right? The the uh, the reputation yeah. and the and the substance of what it means to be part of scouting. You know, I mean, I think I, one other thing I just want to point out is that I think it's really important that the media get the kudos that they deserve on on all of these issues around sexual abuse and sexual harassment. And, you know, over the last several years, the media has been much more persistent in covering sexual abuse cases, even within institutions that had a lot of clout. And um, I I think that's important. I think it's important to note that, you know, uh, it used to be a lot harder for victims of abuse to come forward and get um, members of the media to really believe them and believe that it could take place at the scale that it took place in the Boy Scouts and in the Catholic Church and in Hollywood, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, that's something that I think is really important to to give them the compliments on because it's important that they cover these kinds of stories. Yeah. All right, Suzanne. Thanks a lot. Very interesting stuff, and we'll be monitoring how that unfolds. Thanks, Casa. All right, up next, Suzanne, let's talk about Mass Live, media organization we talk a lot about because they've done uh, a lot of terrific things. In very innovative. Very innovative, uh, remaining relevant, growing, which uh, very few organizations are doing. Yep. Um, they made an announcement that they are eliminating reader comments yes. from the Mass Live website. Um, and, and it's a fascinating uh, decision that's got a couple different levels to it. Yep. I ask what... 
first of all, break it down a little bit, but also what's your reaction sure. initially? So um, in reading the article that they put out, I guess it was yesterday, announcing that they were doing this, and they were doing it quickly, which is smart. They announced it, and then they said, okay, and it's going to happen in a day, so yeah. good for them on that. Um, they They were pretty explicit about a couple things. One is... They have fewer resources, even though they are doing innovative things and they actually have expanded in a lot of ways. They're still, uh, you know, in the media landscape where there are fewer resources, so they have less opportunity to monitor. And then secondly, they mentioned social media, basically saying we have a bunch of different ways that we can engage with the community through Facebook, through Twitter, et cetera, and we don't necessarily need to have it on um, on our page. So, OK, I, I that was very um, smart uh, explanations and honest explanations, and I like that. Implicit in it was also the discourse on these pages is not good. It's not. <laughs> so it's, it, and it's it's not. It's universal. Absolutely. Um, it, it is. It's. I think it's a great topic. I think it's a very interesting and 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 probably good decision that will be part of a trend. Uh, yes. And if it's cost driven, okay, I get that. But I don't think. You're losing a lot of value for the reader. Now, there's an argument, and, and I had actually had a pretty good online conversation yesterday yeah. with uh, uh, some president, former Mass Live uh, Springfield uh, Republican journalist uh, who I worked with years ago. And we should say you are an alum. An of alumni, the yes, a, 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 a proud alumni of the Springfield Union News Sunday Republican and Mass Live uh, from years ago. And, and, and there was, you know, on the one hand, there was the argument, which absolutely is valid. You know what? If you're disengaging from readers in some way. How is that a good thing when you're we're doing everything we can yeah. as an organization to hang on to readers, and that makes sense. Um, but to the point you you um, emphasized, there are all these other avenues through social media to do the same thing, correct? In in, in a non-anonymous way that is going to lead to a better discourse. Yeah, the anonymity part is really important. Absolutely, I, I remember uh, in the sort of early the, the wild west of the internet, at least as re- regards to. News websites when I worked at the Boston Herald, it's around 1999, yeah. 98. Very early on, reader comments. And I, I remember saying to myself regularly, this has to get better. Yeah. Someday. At that time, there was absolute profanity. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, unchecked profanity, racism, homophobia, all kinds of terrible it, personal insults directed at people by name. We were figuring it out. Yeah, right? sure. Well, you know what? Twenty some odd years later, it hasn't gotten much better. I think we've 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 eliminated the profanity. That's true. That's about through it. Through the filters, yeah. The, all the other bad things, yeah. are still working their way through, and certainly the negative level of discourse is is uh, is not changed. Yeah, I don't think you're adding much to the reader experience with reader comments. And I don't think you're taking much away by removing them. I think it's interesting, too, because I think for a long time a lot of publications kept reader comments because they saw it as a way of increase, increasing page views, right? It's a way to keep people it, coming back. It's and, like calls into a talk radio yeah, show. Yeah, and this you know, says calls. that maybe they organizations like Mass Live have found other ways to keep people coming back to their website that don't involve like this terrible awful yelling and sniping at each other in comments. What about just a rating system like Facebook or Medium has the clapping? Yeah, that's What true. about replacing with simply, you like this story? Yeah. Give it a check mark right. or something. Well, something and simple. I mean, that. at least they can sort of substitute that with by having Facebook and by having Twitter because you can on Facebook like a story and you can like a tweet, etc. So anyway, I think it's... um. 
I think it's an understandable move on yeah. their part. One of the things I learned in just closing this out, and, and I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what other organizations may, may follow suit. I think some still measure the impact uh, of a story in part by comments, which, mm -hmm. I, which makes sense. Yep. Um, but you also know the traffic, right? You know yeah. that who's reading right. the story and who hasn't. But one of the things I learned in this, in this uh, exchange the other day with some of these journalists involved in this decision yeah. is that the uh, research studies show that you don't really get any credit or yeah. or, or enhancement uh, or or uh, accrue any value for a positive reader discourse on your comments. Right. But you do where the negativity and the hostility right. and God forbid the racism and other stuff yep. that, that 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 gets posted. So all downside, no upside. Right. Um, so I think it's uh, it's an interesting decision. I agree. All right, Suzanne. All right, Suzanne. So the first debate between incumbent U.S. Senator Ed Markey and challenger Congressman Joe Kennedy uh, in the books. And um, folks are breaking it down. Um I know you watched closely. I did. You watched closely as an alumni of uh, the late great uh, U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy's Correct. office. That's right. Um, what were your thoughts? I know I've got mine. Yeah. Well, my first thought is, uh, even though, um, as you mentioned, I did work for Senator Kennedy, I actually haven't decided who I'm going to vote for in the primary yet. And the debate um, was good because it was substantive, but it didn't actually help make that decision for me um, because they're so close. They're very similar in terms of their, you know, beliefs. And they both said things that I very much agree with and very much, you know, are a part of my value system. So, you know, in the sense that that's the kind of debate I want to see that's good, but I, I'm, I'd be interesting to know if it moved the needle at all last night. I'm not sure it did. Yeah. Um, it's a great observation. I think you're absolutely right that, um, there's not a lot of difference there as, as uh, illustrated in this debate. And therefore, I feel like that, that's advantage Margie. Mm, and that's because yeah, could be. campaigns yep. are about differences. Right. And um, if you've got an incumbent who's on their game, and I got to tell you, before this debate, about a week and a half ago, I attended an event where um, Senator Markey was giving remarks and he was on. Yeah. He, you know, he's lean and mean and ready for a fight. Uh, a number of people on Twitter last night were saying how sharp that they thought Senator Markey was. Yeah, sharp, engaging. And if you're the challenger, well, then you need – I don't think you can go in there and just be a younger, newer-looking version mm -hmm. of the same ideological package. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if – is that just – maybe that's just the first introductory exchange – but there's going to have to be some real differences identified somewhere, in my opinion. I, you know, uh, the, the, the incumbent senator says he's in for a race and a fight, and it's going to be tough. And right. I agree. I think that's because true. Because you've got the Kennedy name, and you've got those, and you've got a you've got a a movement toward a new age and youth. Mm -hmm. But um, in this state, I think you really are going to need to make the case strongly with some differences. Why do we need a, a, a new generation version of Ed Markey? Yeah. If you're telling me we need something completely different, 
Well, then show me something completely different, and I don't think the, the congressman has done that. I think um, it was interesting to me because you mentioned sort of the youth part of it. It was interesting to me that Senator Markey um, referenced both young people and young voters and really was calling to young voters because he mentioned Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think, two or three times. Yeah. But then several times mentioned his work um, supporting research into Alzheimer's disease, which is very true. He's done a lot of work on that issue. Yeah. And and that clearly, I mean, he was talking about it in terms of healthcare, but that was also, I think, an outreach to older voters. And in a year where we're hearing a lot of people, and particularly like on the presidential level, Bernie Sanders keeps talking about young voters. Well, young voters themselves will not win you elections. They're very important in terms of marginalized turning out there, but they don't win you elections. It's, it's older voters. So I thought that was, you know, Senator Markey's kind of call out to to that um, was very important. On the other hand, I also thought that Congressman Kennedy had very kind of thoughtful and comprehensive uh, answers around uh, ways that the federal government can help racial discrimination. He talked about environmental justice very authentically. He talked about transportation and housing. And so that's also, those are populations you have to turn out too. And yeah. so I saw places where both of them were trying to draw out their strengths in terms of, you know, voting demographics that could help them. And, and so, you know, again, very smart on both of their parts, but you're right. Like, how does... How does that become a differentiator? I'm not quite sure yet. Yeah. Are they going to debate again before? Um, yeah, they definitely are. I know that they're right? debating I in, I believe there's one in Springfield. Yeah. I also know that they're going to be doing one down in, through one of the Providence stations. I don't know if they're doing it in Providence. That would be a little strange, but I'm not sure. Sure. Um, they may be doing it in like New Bedford or Fall River. Yeah. Um, so I imagine, and I, I know that those two exist. I'm not sure if there's additional ones, but I'm sure that there are. So. All right. We'll be watching closely. It's a pretty interesting, uh, interesting little race. Absolutely. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in Government Center, downtown Boston. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masera. That's it for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Maestro Bruce Hengen, the conductor of the Orchestra of Indian Hill. This is Suzanne Morris, Vice President at O'Neill & Associates. I'm here with Maestro Bruce Hengen, who has been the Artistic Director and Conductor of the Orchestra of Indian Hill since 1997. The orchestra is currently in its 45th season with an upcoming leap year themed concert and a celebration of Bach's 335th birthday, among other concerts. You can find more information about Indian Hill Music and the professional orchestra at Indian Hill at their website, www.indianhillmusic.org. In the meantime, we've asked Maestro Hengen to talk to us about what it means to be an orchestra conductor. So welcome, Maestro Bruce Hengen. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Glad to have you here. I'm happy to be here and talking about being a conductor. Absolutely. Which, uh, I'm not <laughs> sure quite how I'm going to define that, but uh, <laughs> but let me give it a try. Sure. Actually, a conductor is uh, 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 like a coach, yep. um, but we're not on the sidelines. Uh, we're right there in the middle of it all. We're sort of like a referee. We're, we're in the middle of it all. Uh, but we're even uh, elements of mentor, of guide, huh. of teacher, 
of hopefully inspirer, um, all those things all wrapped up into one. Uh, because ultimately what happens in the orchestra business is that is that all the players will come prepared with their own parts, but right. you have to remember that all those players have played probably that same repertoire in so many other different organizations with so many other different conductors. Mm, that's an interesting so thought, therefore, yeah. they know how their part goes, but they don't know what the overall vision is going to be. Right. And that's probably one of the more important and less seen aspects of what a conductor does on an orchestra is that we're showing the overall vision, the if you will, the interpretation of the music. Because as a conductor, most of our work is done at our study desk, right. you know, at, at home or, or wherever we study, uh, at the lakeside or, <laughs> you know, wherever it happens to be. And uh, we open up our scores and we either play it at the piano or we hear it in our brains or we, yeah. or we sing the tunes or whatever we need to do, all the d different parts, and come up with an interpretation of uh, it because so much of making music is not about the notes, but it's what's, what's between the notes and, and huh. how do the notes relate to each other. I mean, that's the interpretation that we're talking that's about. That's really interesting. And so it's my job as a conductor to, to kind of show that to the orchestra, not to have to explain it because nobody wants to be talked to, uh, but rather to show it in, in with gestures um, and with a sense of, a, a scholarly sense of knowing what it is right. I really want to do uh, with the music. So that's kind of what a conductor does. Uh, and then how we how that manifests itself yeah. uh, is different uh, rehearsal to rehearsal mm -hmm. or concert to, uh, rehearsal to concert even uh, where uh, one rehearsal the first rehearsal we get together might be just basically a reading I might just be beating time just to let the players kind of get used to each other right. get used to the repertoire because we may not have paid, played that piece in a, a number of years or uh, or whatever I mean there's so many different uh, circumstances. Um, and, and the second rehearsal is going to be, okay, now we're going to get down to work. We're right. going to get down to brass tacks. We're going to start woodshedding. We're going make it, to make it much better from a technical point of view. Right. And then second, uh, the third and fourth rehearsals will be gradually bringing ourselves back up out of the trenches, uh, if you will, uh, so that at the fourth rehearsal we're then putting it together almost as if it's right. a performance. Then the performance is another whole aspect altogether. I overall. liked the, I thought it was really clever that, you know, you picked a leap year theme and you found ways to, you know, uh, bring these composers who have some sort of leap year right. connection. Right. So I was, when I was uh, reading through that, I was like, this is a, this is neat. Like yeah, this is yeah, about something yeah. that's happening and that everyone experiences, but right. you know, you can bring, bring a classical music kind of touch to it. So that was right. very neat. I, and I like to do that uh, kind of yeah. clever approach, yep. at least at the beginning of putting a program together sure. which is exactly what this is uh, it, it it never gets to the point where it's an um, intellectual exercise right. because it's still musical <laughs> performance yeah, right. right so the most important thing for me is to is to program a concert so that the audience has a real sense of flow from beginning to the end, it's an experience. It's a, it's it's an adventure. Sure. Uh, and sometimes we we address that adventure with other standard programs where it's just all about comfort, where the audience can sit back and relax and listen to things right. that they've probably heard before. Right. But in the case of this, uh, the leap year concert, <laughs> as a matter of fact, 
It turns out that Giacchino Rossini, the composer who composed the Barber of Seville, right. uh, William Tell over uh, William Tell the right. opera, and and so many other great operas that are uh, still in in existence and still being performed today, and we do a lot of the overtures in the symphony world uh, of these operas that. He was born on oh February God, 29th, yeah. That's so, great. so I had to use that as the beginning point of putting together a program. And then I did a whole bunch of research, which I just love to do. Yeah, I just of course. like to dig in there and, and say, okay, so what other anniversaries might there be that I'm not aware of? It turns out there's a contemporary American symphony composed by a man named Howard Hansen that actually was premiered by the New York Philharmonic on <laughs> uh, February 29th. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so we're doing that. Not that that has anything to do with the program musically, but it's just a nice way for me to organize it yeah. and give me another chance to follow a different kind of template uh, in terms of uh, putting a, a program together. Yeah, and I would imagine it's a, you know, in that particular case, you may be introducing with a contemporary, you know, composer, you right. may be introducing a new uh, composer to your audience, right? And you know, you do it in a way that it's accessible because they they have heard Rossini or, or what have yes. you. Yes, yes, so that's yeah, great. exactly right. Uh, and of course, we all realize that. Uh, you do an all Beethoven concert and an all Mozart concert, <laughs> and and you're going to sell out immediately. Yeah, of course. Uh, but if you do the music with Howard Hansen or Igor Stravinsky or uh, S uh, Dmitry Shostakovich, any of those people who might be in the business in the business, right. uh, really standard names, uh, but not to the general person right, out sure. there. So uh, I, I do always have variety and flow in all of my concerts. Sometimes, as you say, it's with the new music. Sometimes it's uh, an interesting twist to the old music. Right. So do you, in terms of how the season goes, do you, I mean, when you start planning that, is that like six months ahead or a year ahead? Were you thinking last year what this year's season was going to look like? How it that usually work? starts for me with the Orchestra of Indian Hill uh, a year and a half oh, ahead okay. of time. Wow. And it's about that point at that time when I'm thinking, Okay, I should, uh, should. We should do this piece, right. or we should have this guest artist yeah. come in, and then it's a long process uh, where, uh, around about a year ahead of time, a year ahead of the of the beginning of the season, meaning September, right? Uh, a year ahead of that time, uh, I'll have a pretty good idea of the basic uh, landmark moments mm -hmm. programming wise. That could be a guest artist, uh, right? And and sometimes you know with me. Uh, with actually most concerts, uh, the guest artist comes first because they're not necessarily going to always do what right. you want them to sure, do. Sure, right. They have they their have own their, have their offerings or what have you. Uh, yeah. right for that particular season. Uh, uh, and sometimes uh, it is the other way around. Uh, if it's a young soloist who wants that opportunity, hmm. sure, I'll learn that sure, piece for you right. because, yeah, otherwise we might not ask them to play. Uh, so it's, it's kind of an interesting mix that way. Mm. But... Uh, we are speaking now in early January, and uh, I can say that just last week, uh, the end of December, my programs were set for next season. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's it's nine, ten months ahead of time. It must be helpful, though, because it's sort of – because you have to do things like research, et cetera, it keeps right. it the fresh in your own mind and, and exciting and interesting as you're going through the season. Oh, for know? sure. Yeah. Well, I follow all, th all kinds of lists in my mind. Yeah. One, There's the list of pieces that I want to do. Yeah. Uh, 
which isn't necessarily every piece. <laughs> uh, sometimes there are pieces that I feel like I should do. To, you know, I haven't done such and such a piece in 20 years. Maybe it's time to bring that out again. Yeah. Uh, even though it might not be my most famous or favorite uh, piece of music. So there's the, my list. There's the, or the orchestra list, pieces that they want to mm, do. Interesting, and yeah. every year, actually, I hand them out a survey. Uh, to just give me give me uh, huh, advice, give me ideas and suggestions for what you'd like to perform. I think that's very important. They are the workers, right? You know? They're so the ones they who make all the notes. So they need to be engaged with the piece of music that they're performing. Yeah, I'm sure. right, so, uh, exactly. Yeah. And there's more buy-in that yeah, way. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's the list of what the audience wants to hear. Beethoven and Mozart, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe Tchaikovsky. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's also the list of what I think they should hear, right? Uh, which is uh, not any probably not any names that they would be able to right. come up with on their own. But that's the teaching uh, role that yeah. you're performing too, uh, right? Precisely. So, yeah. so uh, it's all of those things combined, and and then it's interesting. There are param other parameters that uh, one has to keep in mind, which is. Uh, how long is the program going to go? Mm, yeah. uh, because all of my programming is not just picking pieces of music, but rather the, the durations for those pieces. And it turns out that standard-wise, all of my concerts are between 75 and 85 minutes mm. of music, okay. uh, which translates automatically in the concert experience to a two-hour uh, concert when you conclude include starting late a few minutes right, sure. including the intermission yeah, right. and the applause in yep. between pieces uh, if I'm doing six pieces on a in a concert I'll do it a shorter time length shorter duration overall just because the, the applause in between the pieces takes up right that much yeah more right time, <laughs> I know. hadn't thought about that yeah <laughs> so, so I mean, there's that there's the there's the instrumentation piece right. uh, I probably wouldn't uh, program a five minute piece as the only piece that includes, let's say, the trombones and tuba, <laughs> because then it's kind of a waste of their time, right, yeah. and it's a waste of our money to have them come and rehearse for a few minutes out of each rehearsal right. when they're getting paid for the whole uh, rehearsal. Right, of course. So all those kinds of th considerations are there, as well as how many years has it been since this orchestra has done this repertoire? If it's been the last two years, unless it's Mozart, Beethoven, or Tchaikovsky, uh, I probably won't do it again yeah. in quite such quick succession. Right. You know, there was a, a famous conductor, George Zill, of the Cleveland Orchestra, uh, for many years. He was their music director, I think, for 40 years. Wow. And he had, the, there was the, the notion amongst the players that he had a five-year cycle of programs. And sort of somehow or other, after every five years, <laughs> the same program right. would Certain come around Certain pieces would again. come back up, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and it's kind of interesting. But I was just thinking about that the other day, realizing that I don't think I've repeated a program ever. Wow. Uh, quite frankly. Impressive. Uh, I, I, I like the variety. Yeah. You know? uh, or yes, I'll repeat pieces, that's for sure, but in different configurations. Right, not from a whole program perspective. Right. So our last question is, what do you want to share with our listeners about Indian Hill music and the orchestra of uh, Indian Hill? Well, what I primarily like to share is the fact that the Orchestra of Indian Hill is actually, it's not a community orchestra, it's not a student orchestra, this is a professional, fully professional orchestra that uh, so far, until our new center gets built, mm -hmm. so far has been a unable to perform any more than six concerts a year just because of lack of venue right. more than anything else. And the venues that we've been limited to in the past 
in the, what, 35 years has it been, something like That's that, right, yep. uh, that uh, we've been limited to high school auditoriums, uh, which is not the best place right. to prevent pre uh, present professional music. So we have this new concert hall being built, and our concert services and our events, our performances that the orchestra is going to be able to do in the near future and the far future will be to expand exponentially uh, the programs that we offer, the kinds of programs, not just the number, but the kinds of programs. Right. We'll be getting into POPs uh, series. We'll be doing uh, a service to youth concert, uh, youth audiences. Uh, we'll be expanding in, in ways, even in, with the classical repertoire, that we've not been able to do right. with high school auditoriums just for the lack of size. You know, a high school auditorium stage is usually not very large. No, and, I know. And the 75 musicians that we have are crammed into that space. Right. So there's really no room for multiple soloists or jazz concerts or anything like that or, or, or co large choruses. So or I'm d dying to get into this new facility <laughs> so that we can do a Beethoven Ninth for everybody uh, and all this other kind of wonderful stuff. So coming back to my original point, it's a great orchestra. Uh, we have a terrific culture within the orchestra. Uh, and and even more importantly, we have a very devoted and faithful and loyal audience yeah. that comes to every concert. And, and they know that we're approaching this for them. This is not a vanity performance by any means just for ourselves. Right. We're there because we want to communicate the power of music to them. Absolutely, and we will have you back when uh, when the new center is uh, we when we can talk more great. <laughs> about yeah, it. Great. But wait. in the meantime, people should absolutely visit uh, the uh, Indian Hill Music's website to learn more about the orchestra of Indian Hill, which is at www.indianhillmusic.org. And thank you, Maestro Bruce Hangen, for being here. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you, Maestro Bruce Hengen. And now, a preview of our latest podcast, OA on Healthcare with Joe Alviani. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Alviani. You may remember me from my days as State Secretary of Economic Affairs or more recently doing healthcare policy for the region's largest healthcare provider. But today, I'm here to introduce you to the new series of podcasts that I'll be hosting. OA on Healthcare, produced by O'Neill and Associates. These podcasts are going to focus on issues in healthcare that impact consumers, patients, and businesses here in Massachusetts and throughout New England. You know, when friends ask me what it's like to work in healthcare policy, my answer usually includes two words complicated and relentless. Healthcare is complicated because it's incredibly confusing. If you've ever tried to work your way through Medicare drug plans, or a hospital bill, you know what I mean. And it's relentless because whenever you believe you've solved one healthcare-related problem, others arise, usually related to the one you think you've just solved. Well, in these podcasts, I'll be interviewing people who deal with these kinds of issues every day. Elected officials and policymakers, leaders from the hospital insurance and life sciences industries, and healthcare providers whose work it is to provide critical treatment to patients. We hope that these podcasts will contribute to an understanding of issues like access to and affordability of care, the future of our community hospitals and health centers, disparities in the way care is provided to different groups, control of rising drug prices, 
the effects of a changing healthcare market on consumers, innovations in medical research, and the challenges posed by behavioral health and substance use disorders, just to name a few. I hope you'll consider joining me and find our OA on Healthcare podcast interesting and informative. And also subscribe on SoundCloud at OA on Healthcare. This is Joe Alviani of O'Neill and Associates, and this is OA on Healthcare. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Don't forget to subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week. <laughs>